the Lord, O my soul, and forget not one of His benefits, for He's forgiven me of all my iniquities. He's healed me of all my diseases. He's rescued my life from the pit of destruction. He's crowned my life with loving kindness and tender mercies. He gives me good things so that my youth is renewed like the eagle's. He extends His love to us. His unfailing love. And He takes our sin. And He casts it as far as the east is from the west. And He remembers it no more. That's why we tell our soul to bless Him. So I throw up my hands and praise You again and again. Because all that I have But I'm nothing else fit for a king Except for a heart singing Hallelujah Hallelujah Thank you, God. May we always remind ourselves that we need to bless your holy name. 
It's because of all the things that you do for us. And even if you never ever did anything else for us, you're worthy of our praise because you are God. You are the creator of the universe. You are the creator of us. You are our God, created by you, and we are the sheep of your pasture. And so we shout for joy. We rejoice in your presence. We give you thanks and we give you praise for your good and your loving kindness endures for all generations. Amen. You would open up your Bibles to John chapter 11 as we continue our study through John's Gospel and addressing the reason why we should believe. A couple of other things that I want to remind you of just a... Uh, uh, Upcoming Christmas, we have two services that are going to be Christmas Eve and then one on Christmas Day. So we want to make sure that the cards that you all got on Sunday, that you're handing them out and, and inviting people and get it on that, that calendar. It's going to be a great time. I believe we're, what, 3.30 and 5.30 on Christmas Eve and then 10.45 and on uh, Sunday morning, Christmas morning. And it'll be a great opportunity for us to be able to, to celebrate Another thing that uh, I wanted to share with you that's super cool is that uh, I sent off the deposit and the contract for us to be able to go to Israel in Jordan in 2024. So we're looking at the first two weeks of March of 2024, so you can start saving up for it. The estimated cost right now is $4,500, and that's your airfare and all the, everything but lunches. Uh, lunches we'll eat on the road a lot, but we're going to be doing three days in Jordan, one whole day in, in Petra, um, and then Jerash, and then also going to Mount Nebo, and then uh, we're going to spend the night down at the bottom at the Dead Sea. We're going to drive all the way down and spend the night down there and go float in the Dead Sea. That would be kind of cool. And be able to see that. So we picked out the best of that. So that's coming up. Uh, we'll have a lot more information is in April when all the air fairs all come in, so we'll have a, a better idea with that. So just a lot of things going on. I want to encourage you to think about uh, just a number of different things. Tonight, though, we're going to be taking a look at John 11. John 11 is the end of a segment. We started kind of this part of John's um, discussion in chapter 5. As John started with the, the Sabbath controversy, if you remember way back then, when he was moving through the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Dedications, and now he's going to come to the place of, of being able to uh, argue the reason why you should believe in Jesus is because he has the power over death. You think about, man, what is man's greatest fear? Ultimately, dying. If you talk with anybody, death for, for everybody has got some element of fear unless you know Jesus. Unless you know that you are saved. And you know that, that to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. But many people struggle with death. And multiple times the Jews would hear that Jesus is the Messiah and want to kill him. And they didn't like him as a person. Have you ever hated somebody so much that you never really heard what they said? They were blinded by their hatred and blinded by their anger and their bitterness. And they weren't hearing what Jesus was saying. Even the miracles, if you remember the miracle of Cana and the wedding feast, he was able to establish the miracles. They couldn't see the Messiah Jesus 
when, when he's standing right in front of them doing these miracles because of their inward hatred and, and their feeling of being challenged. But it's really kind of hard to argue against a man that was raised from the dead. But they'll do it. Even if a man was to rise again, would he believe? And the answer is not necessarily. And so we're going to take a look at John's point as he's proving to the readers, as he's writing this letter, this gospel. He's trying to prove to them these are the reasons why you should believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And ultimately, have you ever met somebody, you, you want to shake them and you want to go, what will it take for you to believe? What will it take? And, and, and that's the challenge. So this is by far the ultimate miracle that Jesus could perform prior to his own resurrection, proving that he has power over death. So we're going to take a look at, at these passages. In chapter 11, verses 1 through 16, we're going to see this challenge. And again, we've, we've been through these passages a lot. You're probably very familiar with this section. And it's the resurrection of Lazarus. It says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, uh, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sister sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. And when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified in it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And then after that, he said, let's go to the disciples to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And you're going to go there again? And Jesus said, are there not twelve hours in a day? The answer would be yes. And if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light's not in him. And this he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I might awaken him out of his sleep. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. And Jesus had spoken of his death. But they thought that he was speaking of a literal sleep. And so Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sake that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Therefore, Thomas, who was called Didymus or the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go so we might go die with him. What an encourager. Let's go. We'll just go all die. Now, Verses 1 through 4, we get the news. Jesus is in the area of Perea. Why? Because he had moved out of the area away from Jerusalem and Bethany because they were seeking to kill him. Now, Jesus, although being the Son of God and capable of defending himself, knew that there was a specific time and timeline by which he would go to the cross. In fact, on Sunday, we're going to be covering that in our Advent series about God's providence in this timeline. You don't want to miss the Advent series starting this Sunday. So with that, Jesus knew that it wasn't his time to die yet. So he goes with the disciples and he goes out into the Decapolis area, into Perea on the other side of the Jordan. He's there waiting 
and just doing some teaching and spending some time. Now, the main people in the account is Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Out of all the people in the biblical accounts, if you were to look for Jesus' best friends, these would be his best friends. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They lived in Bethany, just on the other side of the Mount of Olives, in this little village, and Jesus would stay there. Whenever he came into Jerusalem, he would stay in Bethany. He wouldn't stay in Jerusalem proper. And it was there where he would be encouraged by them. They had a very tight relationship. This is not the same Lazarus that you find in Luke 16, 20 to 25. Lazarus' full name is Eleazar. It's interesting because the name Eleazar means God assists. And God's going to assist him in bringing him back to life and help him in this disease. Now, as I said, they lived in Bethany, just on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And Mary and Martha are two very unique individuals. Martha was the busy one. Martha was the, the one that was the hostess with the mostest. I mean, she, she wanted to run around and make sure everything was perfect and everything was right and cooking and all of these different things. And In fact, she got bothered because her sister Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus and said, Jesus, look it. Why don't you get Mary up and help me? Because there's a lot to do. And Jesus said to Martha, Mary's chosen the better of the things. To be able to sit at the feet of Jesus. In fact, Michelangelo had done a statue years ago. And in the statue, it had the statue. And it was a statue of Jesus, but you never saw his face. He just leaned over, and there was, there was within that statue, a woman looking down. And under the inscription, it says, unless you get on your knees, you'll never see his face. It's important to understand that, that Mary understood the most important thing. She loved Jesus and she wanted to spend time and be at his feet. And so within this, these sisters were very close to him. Lazarus was a good friend. And they informed Jesus that, Lazarus, your friend is sick. They sent a messenger. It was a two-day journey to go from Bethany to where Jesus was in Perea, to go find him. You've got to go find him. It wasn't like they can call him on the cell phone, send him a text message. They had to go look for him. So the messenger goes out and finds him. And in, in verse 1, it says this, this man that was sick was, was Lazarus. Verse 3 says, so the sister sent word saying, Lord, behold, note, the one whom you love is sick. We know that, that Jesus had great emotion. They come and they sent the message, the one whom you love is sick. What's interesting about that request? It wasn't a come and heal. It was a notification. What were they trusting in? Relationship. The one whom you love is sick. Does God know our need before we ever confess that need? Absolutely. When we make that need known, we're just connecting our heart with the heart of God. They made their need known. They didn't make a demand on him. They made that need known. It's interesting because in John chapter 2, verse 3, Mary, the mother of Jesus, does something very similar. In the wedding feast of Cana, the wine had run out. And Mary's statement was, it says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him and said, They have no wine. And what does that tell us about prayer requests? One, we don't have to go into a big, long diatribe of what we want God to do. 
But we can very simply go to Him and say, God, I'm feeling sick. My loved one is ill. God, would you heal? Making our needs known can be done very simply. And it's based off of a relationship. God loves you. And He wants to hear our prayers. And, and this need was brought to Him, and we just bring our cares and concerns to Him. Why? Because the Scripture tells us He cares for us. And we can just very simply say, God, help. God, I have this need. Now, this, it's interesting because they're in crisis. The one whom you love is sick. But Jesus says in verse 4, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. There isn't anything that happens outside of God's purview. God is sovereign over every event. God has divine plans and divine decrees, as we're going to, again, study on Sunday. This tells me that Lazarus' sickness was part of the plan of God. That Jesus knew full well that this sickness was a sickness that was not unto death, which gives us a hint that He knows what He's going to do, and that there's a purpose behind this sickness, so that God would be glorified through this, that Jesus would be glorified through this. Does that happen all the time? No. Some people get sick and die. That happens. Some people get cancer and they die. That happens. But can God be glorified through sickness and through cancer and even through the death of an individual? The answer is absolutely. And we've got to understand that in God's sovereign plan, God is good and He decrees His will, which is always good, for His glory. His glory. We're going to wrestle with that. Because when God's glory collides with our pleasure, we struggle. When God's glory collides with our well-being, or what we determine our well-being, we struggle. God, how can you be glorified by a two-year-old that dies? How can you do that? How can you allow a death? How can you allow a suffering? How can you allow an illness? How can you allow a handicap? How can you allow all of these, these horrible things that take place? You know, these four students that were brutally killed in Moscow, Idaho. That's all over the news. How can you allow such a thing? All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose and for His glory. And we may not understand it in the moment. We may never understand it. But somewhere along the line, God will be glorified either by an individual or by a group or by the angels in heaven. It's a struggle. But Jesus gives us insight in verse 4. He says, The sickness is not to death, to end in death, <clears throat> but for the glory of God, so that, that Henoclaus, that God may be glorified through this. We know that this sickness will not end in Lazarus' 
death right now. He, Lazarus is going to die. We know the end of the story. Spoiler alert, Jesus raises him from the dead and Lazarus has to die again. It's really kind of stinky, but... The event, though, is an event that leads to Passover. Lazarus' death and resurrection is going to be a significant event that leads into the Passover where Jesus is going to be in Jerusalem during the Passover. And it is going to be a significant miracle that establishes His power and authority as He goes into Passover. The timing is perfect within this. And ultimately... The supreme moment of glorification is when Jesus dies and rises again. In John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, Jesus says these things. Jesus spoke these things and he lifted up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. You, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, that he may give eternal life. Notice. What is the gift? It's eternal life. And this is eternal life. Not that you're going to live forever. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which we had, which I had with you before the world was. When we take a word, that word glory, it means it's doxa. It means to magnify. If you want to see the glory or the magnification of who God is, you're going to see Him in eternal life and in heaven. We look at God right now through a glass dimly, don't we? Can anyone on this planet comprehend God? No. But when we get to heaven and we see God in all of His glory, His doxa, and we see Jesus glorified, magnified on the throne. All of these trials and all of these difficulties that we have right now are going to fade away within this. And Jesus says everything will be restored. We think about the, the healing of the blind men that John mentioned earlier in 9.3. So Jesus Andrew says it was neither for this man's sin or this parent's, but so that the works of God might be displayed in him. How do you see the power and the glory of God? When God reveals Himself through our brokenness and our sorrow and our suffering. When God does the miracles. When God's mighty hand is shown in our, in our weakest moments. That's when we see the glory of God. And even in that, what is the greatest glory? The greatest glory is to leave this earth and to see your Creator. I love early morning sunrises that are, that are just colorful. That, that red-orange hue that fills the sky. And you get up and, and, and I love getting on the side of a, a mountain and a hill and looking at it and watching it, the sunrise. You realize that is nothing compared to who God is and His glory? And I love to see a newborn baby. To know that God created this being, this child. And to watch that child grow and mature. 
And then, by God's grace, that child falling in love with Jesus and becoming a Christ follower. That's the glory of God. To see all of these things happen. Question. Could Jesus have healed Lazarus from where he was? Yeah. He didn't have to be present, did he? They could have said, hey, you know, Jesus, Lazarus is sick. Oh, he's sick. Okay. Lazarus be healed. Go. Check it out. Had he done that before? Absolutely he had done it before. Centurion's daughter. He didn't have to be present. But he had to be present and Lazarus had to die in order for Jesus to be able to call Lazarus out of the tomb within that. So Jesus makes a decision, verses 5 to 16. I'm going to wait. Now, it's interesting because we got to take a look at why did he wait? What was this miracle for? Who was going to benefit the most out of this miracle? Was it Mary? Would she benefit out of her brother dying and rising again? Maybe. Martha? Maybe. The crowds of mourners, would they benefit the most? Not really. How about the Sadducees and Pharisees that were not wanting to believe in Jesus? No, because we're going to read later that they still wanted to kill him. Who is this miracle really for? The disciples. It was being on display for the disciples. Why? Because the disciples had to be convinced and understand that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He was establishing a truth for them that would carry them through in their faith, in their understanding. It was planting this seed. Now you would think, well, if Jesus really loved the family, he would heal them. No, he stays two days longer. Why? Because Lazarus not only had to be dead, but he had to be good and dead. We have a, we have a saying in the fire department, if somebody drowns, we pull them out of the water, right? And they're cold and they, they're drowned. They're not cold and dead. We have to wait till they're what? Warm and dead. Because they could be resuscitated. Jesus wanted to wait two days. Why? Because it would take Him two days to get there, a total of four days. According to Jewish culture, a body would be placed in the tomb and it was thought that the soul of the body would hover over the tomb for three days. That was a mystical, cultural, cultic kind of thing that they believed in. Jesus needed to wait till day four so that he would remove all doubt that Lazarus was completely dead. So he waits. And you think, well, this must have been a difficult time. You think about the sisters. Was it loving to put the sisters through this? The sisters, they have to watch their brother who was sick slowly die over the period of two days. Maybe he was critical right when they sent the news. We don't know. But the delay, the delay sure made sure that Lazarus would die. So a couple of days later, Jesus announces to his disciples the decision to go. The disciples who really didn't get it, verse 7, or verse 8, 
Rabbi, the Jews are just now seeking to stone you there. Should we go again? And he says, look it, aren't there 12 days of the month? And he reads them this, he speaks to them this parable. In any words, you're, you're not walking in the light. There are 12 hours of daylight. It's time to work. It's time to go. And to walk in that light. Jesus would say of himself in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me, no, follows me, will not walk in the darkness, but have the light of life. Jesus says there's 12 days and there's light. Let's go work. We don't know that we should go. Do you really think that's a good idea? Here's a question. Is it a good idea to question Jesus? I am the light of the world. Follow me and you will what? Walk in the light. Just follow what Jesus says, even if it doesn't make sense. Even if it doesn't make sense. And so Jesus says, we need to go because my brother Lazarus has fallen asleep. And you all have heard those terms before, right? May they rest in peace. They've fallen in sleep. They're in a better place and all these other things. And we try to make it nice when somebody dies. And they say, well, if he's asleep, he's going to get better, right? And so Jesus has to plainly say, no, he's dead. Interesting. In Jesus' sovereignty, two days after hearing the news, Jesus knows that Lazarus is already dead. He waited. But he waited so that in the miracle, as he says, so that you will believe. Our greatest fear is the unknown, this separation. But for the believer, you don't have to fear that. Do you know to be absent from the body, as I said earlier, is present with the Lord? The transformation is so instantaneous that the minute that you close your eyes, that you're going to be with the Lord. And I've been with believers that have died. And I've shared with you the account of, of Lloyd Helgerson when he was getting ready to, to graduate. And Velma would say that Lloyd was pointing up at the corner of the, the wall. There was nothing on the wall. thought he was delirious. What was he pointing at? An angel. Because we know in the account of Lazarus and rich man that the angels were sent to take Lazarus home. We know that death, even though is scary, it's not as scary as a spiritual death. Jesus came to give us victory over that. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned, we are all going to have a physical death. And Paul would say that our last enemy in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. John would later write in Revelation 20, verse 14, death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. This is the second death. This is the lake of fire. As a Christ follower, you don't have to be afraid of death. You don't have to be scared of death because you've been set free. When Jesus died... He conquered sin and death. And in Revelation, we see that death is going to be cast out, removed. It's interesting and ironic, though, that Thomas's words, who is the realist, says, all right, let's go with him. Let's go die. Old doubting Thomas. We're going to let's just let's just go with him. Let's just get it over with. 
And so they head out. But the question is, how is God's glory revealed? Look at verse 17. In verses 17 to 27, it's the glory of God that's revealed in this. In 17:22, Jesus comes into Bethany. says, so when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Right? So we know four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and to Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. Mary stayed in the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Now we think about this for a moment. We think, well, okay, Jesus waited till he died. We know that the four days would equal that, that time of lamenting and the mourning and the things that were going on. Jesus is coming down the road. Mary stays in the house. Martha goes running out to him. Was Martha very kind? No. Justifiably angry? Yes. Why? She had an expectation. She made a request to Jesus who had performed so many miracles for everybody else, but he wasn't there for her. Have you ever met somebody like that? Been in that place where you pray and you go, God, you've done this for this person, this person, and this person. Why aren't you here for me? That's a tough place to be. It, it, it was a challenge for Martha. I needed you, and I needed you here, and I needed you to act. Jesus, don't you care? And we've all been there. God, don't you care? Don't you care about what's going on in my life right now? There is that moment in time where we have what's called a crisis of faith. Where our faith and our emotions collide and we have to wrestle with what we know to be true against what we feel to be true. And faith needs to have victory within that. Martha had lost confidence in her grief, but she didn't lose confidence in her faith. Notice what she says. Verse 22, even though she had this emotional outburst, she says this, even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. What's implied in that, question, that statement? I know that if you ask of God to raise my brother from the dead, God will give that to you. Does Mary really understand who she's talking to yet? Not quite. She sees Jesus as a prophet, as a miracle worker, as a man of God, but not God himself. And within this, she makes this request out of faith, very simple faith. So her faith overrides her emotion in her request. And she says, please, make it better. Well, Jesus spoke with her these words of hope, of insurance. 
23-27, Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he's going to rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into this world. What did Jesus do? What's amazing is Jesus doesn't come back and, and rebuke her for her lack of faith. He actually elevates and draws out deeper faith from her. He doesn't say, oh, you should have believed much more. He brings out the truth and says, basically, your brother will rise again. That is a truth. He will rise again, not just in this life, but in an eternal life. The problem is Martha has to wrestle with this in her understanding. And she says, I know that he'll rise again. I know about that heaven stuff. But Jesus is talking about right now. Interesting in verse 25, you see the words, I am. If you've been with us long enough, you know what those words are. They're what? Ego ami. It's the name of God. He declares the name of God. I am. Ego ami. The resurrection. And the life. He who believes in me, ego ami, will live even if he dies. This is the fifth I am statement in John's account. He's proving that Jesus is God within this. That Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And in this, we have to understand, Jesus' mission is not to keep human beings alive forever on this planet. That's not his role. His role is to sacrifice His life for our sin to offer us eternal life. To give His life in exchange so that we would not suffer death forever in the lake of fire. I am the resurrection life. And if you believe in Me, if you put yourself in Me, you will never die. Imagine what kind of peace that brings to a person that is physically suffering and physically dying. When they're getting ready to shed this body and realize, I have eternal life. I have eternal life. And when does eternal life begin? At the moment you place your faith in Jesus. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. That means at the point in time that you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you begin to live eternally. And as you are living eternally, being born again, some point in time this body is going to be shed through death and you receive that new body that God has for you. Much like caterpillar to a butterfly. What's the difference between death and the rapture? 
Death takes a little bit more time and it's painful. The rapture is instantaneous. I vote for the rapture. Come Lord Jesus. But we understand that that we can have the eternal life. John 5.24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me has, present tense, eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Look at that passage carefully. <coughs> Excuse me. Notice how he says, the one who hears and believes. Faith comes by hearing, Hebrews says, and hearing by the Word of God. He who hears my words and believes, notice, has present tense eternal life right now. When does eternal life begin? At the moment of salvation, at the moment of faith, when your heart is transformed, you have eternal life right now. Notice, not only do you have eternal life, but the chi or the and says, and does not come into judgment. Paul would say in Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you realize right now, as a Christ follower, as one who is born again, you are in Christ and there is no judgment upon you. Nor will there ever be. Because all of your sin has been judged already at the cross. There is no judgment. There is no condemnation. Because it was taken care of at the cross. And you have eternal life right now. The next time Satan wants to remind you of your sin, very simply remind him of the cross. When Jesus said, paid in full, it is finished, to tell us I done. And notice how John ends it. He says, but he has passed from death to life. Martha makes this confession. And she says to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed. You are the Christ. That is her confession. The Son of God. She gets it. And she makes that confession. She, and that's where we come to the place. Every crisis of faith, and hear me clearly, every crisis of faith will bring us to that place where we have to decide, is Jesus the Son of God? Is Jesus my Savior? It is not a simple, warm, fuzzy feeling. It is a, it is a line in the sand. It's a crisis of faith where you come to that place and you say, I can, I, I've got nothing else. I believe. And that was Martha. She had come to that point. The account goes on in verses 28 to 33. says, When she had said this, she went away, called Mary, her sister, who was where? In the house, saying secretly, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. And now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly, went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb with them. And therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him, fell at his feet. Notice, Mary's preferred position at the feet of Jesus. She fell at his feet 
But what does she say? Lord, if you had been here and you weren't, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who were coming with her weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and was troubled. Question. Why didn't Jesus have the same conversation with Mary as he did with Martha? Why didn't he correct her condition or position theologically? If you had been here, my brother would not have died. The text doesn't tell us clearly why Jesus doesn't make this correction. We're not told about Martha and Mary's little conversation that they had in the house, other than Mary came. But I think John gives us a clue. When Mary fell at the feet of Jesus, there seems to be a more intimate relationship. I take that to mean that with each believer in each crisis of faith, Jesus would deal with people differently. Martha, probably the more belligerent one, needed a conversation. But what do we see happen with Jesus? It says He was deeply moved emotionally. It, it tells us that there was a different kind of relationship that He had with Mary. It tells us also that people grieve differently. Where Martha was angry, Mary was just in grief. Martha needed a conversation. Mary didn't need the conversation. She needed the restoration. And so Jesus was moved as the mourners came and, and troubled in His spirit. Why was He so troubled in His spirit? Because in His humanity He was conflicted. Emotionally, he feels all of our sorrows and our sufferings and our pains. He is not a robot. And his heart was breaking. The word in, in, in Greek is embryomai. And it, le it literally means to be deeply moved or troubled, indignant and angry. He was angry. Why was Jesus angry? Because he was seeing the impact of sin upon the people that he loved dearly. Have you ever had a friend or a relative or somebody that you love dearly and you were watching them suffer because of the consequences of sin, whether it was their sin or the sin that was being cast upon them? But Jesus was seeing the impact of sin, death, and sorrow upon the people that He loved the most. His friend died. His friends felt like He, left it, he let them down. The fake mourners were all around Him. And He was deeply moved. Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted, 
or tried in all things as we are yet without sin. I see this as all of the human emotions coming crashing down on Jesus. And He's grieving. Even though He is the solution, He's still grieving. Verses 34 to 44, He goes on in this. And He says, Where have you laid Him? And they said to Him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. But it's not a little weeping, boo-hoo. It was, it was a serious crying at a very low level just as He's walking. And so the Jews were saying, see how He loved Him. But some of the men said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus began, again, deeply moved within, came to the tomb, and now it was a cave, and a stone was laying against it. And Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time he will, there will be a stench, for he's been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? And so they removed the stone, and then Jesus raised his eyes and said, This is one of the few times that we get insight to a personal prayer between Jesus and his Father. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I knew that you always hear me. But because of these people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings. And his face was wrapped around with cloth. And Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Can you see the picture? Jesus walking along this dirt road. And the utter groanings of just crying. And they're like, look at him. He must have cared for him much. And then the other voices are saying, no, he didn't care that much. Because if he really cared, he would have been here. He's a joke. And all of this is going on while Jesus is walking towards his tomb, mourning the death of his friend. He knew that this sickness, as he said earlier, was not a sickness to Lazarus' death. He knew what he was going to do. But still he was grieving. You ever wonder what drove Jesus to the cross? What would move Jesus to go to the cross and die? In His sovereignty, He sees you. He sees in His eternity that if He doesn't step in and offer His life, you'll be dead in the tomb. And you'll remain there. Until all death and you will go spend Eternity in the lake of fire. What drove Jesus to the cross? Your salvation. He was moved. We are given this insight of Jesus' emotions and His motivation. He had to do this. No doubt He was conflicted. Having to allow His friend to die and to suffer. For the greater good. What was the greater good? 
the suffering and death of Lazarus and the suffering of Martha and Mary was for the greater good so that he could prove to his disciples and to us that he has power over death. How do we know that? Because he prayed that prayer out loud. And I say this, Father, so that they will all hear and know that you are the one that sent me. It was a public prayer. And he knew this would take place. Roll away the stone. As I shared on Sunday, there's some passages that make me chuckle. This is one of them. Jesus says, roll away the stone. Martha says, he's going to stink. And Jesus has to correct her. He says, didn't I tell you he was, you're going to see the glory of God? What are you worried about him stinking? I'm going to raise him from the dead. She believed, but she still had a sense of unbelief. And then Jesus called Lazarus to come forth by name. I love this because it gives us an illustration of how personal God is. That Lazarus was called out by name. When the believer dies, God calls you home by name. Come forth. Shed off those grave clothes that we're all wearing right now and go to be with Him. It's interesting to me the fact that Jesus would do such a, a magnificent thing. And we know in, in where He says, unbind Him and let Him go, or literally loose Him. Set Him free. And it reminds me of John 8.36. So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Now in my mind, this should be enough for everybody to believe, isn't it? I mean, you think about it. If you're watching this and you're seeing all this going on, and if you're the religious leaders and you're looking for the Messiah, He's healed the sick, He's, he's, he's made the lame to walk, He's given sight to the blind. He's checked all the boxes. And now He brings somebody back from the dead. You would think that you would believe, right? Nope. Not even if a man is raised from the dead. The last part of this chapter is 47 to 57, which sets us up for next week. Therefore, the chief priests, I'm sorry, verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw that he had done this believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. And if we let him go on like this, all the men will believe in him. That's the point. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that note. It's expedient for you that one man may die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the whole nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one children of God that are scattered abroad. From that day on, they planned together to kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there 
to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near. Many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. And so they were seeking Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was reported to them so that they might seize him. Will there be people that will utterly reject God when he clearly displays himself face to face? Absolutely. You know what's amazing to me about this? We have yet to see the rapture of the church. We have yet to see the time of the tribulation. And even during the time of the tribulation, people will still reject God. What will it take for people to believe? It takes brokenness. It takes an understanding. It takes that individual decision. I love the fact that the text tells us that many saw and believed, but there were those that didn't. I know most of you, I know that you're here because you believe. But how many people out there don't believe? We need to share the gospel of Jesus. We need to share that Jesus is the resurrection life. We need to bring people to the cross so that they could understand that they could have that life. I love the fact that God has given us the privilege of doing many funeral ministries. This is a passage I teach often in doing funerals. Why? Because Jesus did this so that they would see the glory of God. To the unbelievers. Does it work? For some. I've been having a conversation with somebody who suffered a great loss and has been watching online and sends me text messages where God is working on his heart because we were able to give to him hope because there was loss. Church, that's what we need to do. We need to give people hope when they suffer loss. We need to give to them the answer for life so that they don't die. And their greatest fear of losing someone can be subsided because they can trust in Jesus. You know, there's a lot of people that have gone before us. I look forward to seeing them. There's a lot of people that are facing death's door. Can you give them hope? If you do, give them Jesus. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you give to us that hope, that promise, and that future. Clearly here in this account, Lord Jesus, you demonstrated your power over death. For those that that really didn't even totally understand that you were and are the resurrection and life. It's by your grace that, that you raised Lazarus from the dead. It was by your grace that you raised us into new life. For all that belief. Lord, I pray for those that don't believe, like these Pharisees and these Sadducees. Even if a man was to rise again, and Lord Jesus, you did. There are going to be some that don't. But till that day you call us home. 
may we share the truth that You are the resurrection and the life. That whoever believes in You will have eternal life instantaneously. Never stand in judgment. And enjoy the love of the Father from this time forward. As we close out, may we declare our faith clearly and honor You with our voices and our lives, especially this holiday season. We thank You in Jesus' name. Let's all stand.
Praise Jesus. Have a blessed rest of your week. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.